Welcome to Beauty is Eternal, the art of being your best self for women, where we go in-depth and under the skin of experts. Today's episode is called Special Forces Commander Michael Hawk, Hero, Green Beret, and Badass on his life, childhood, his motivations, and why survival skills matter. The secret to life is to figure out what your weaknesses are and work around them, and what your strengths are and work with them. Today, I would like to announce a very special guest, the living legend, Michael Hawk. It is going to take me a few minutes to list all of his accomplishments. Born in 1965 in Fort Knox, Kentucky, Michael spent 20 years in the U.S. Army and attained the rank of captain in the U.S. Special Forces, known as the Green Berets. He held three Special Forces military operation skills, including Special Forces Medic, Special Forces Communicator, and Special Forces Intelligence Operations. In case it is not already clear, Michael was taught to be a killing machine and trained to survive any scenario. He has trained UN peacekeepers in Africa while fighting rebels and been active in search and rescue missions in Colombia during the drug war. He studied biology for his undergraduate degree and family counseling for his graduate degree. Michael has starred in over 50 TV shows as well as the programs he created including Man, Woman, Wild and One Man Army for Discovery Channel as well as Lost Survivors for Travel Channel and Elite Tactical Unit for Outdoor Channel. He has black belts in Aikido and in Judo. He has written books including, but not limited to, The Quick and Dirty Guide to Learning Language Fast, Hawk's Green Beret Survival Manual, Hawk's Special Forces Survival Handbook, The Guide to Getting Out Alive, and Family Survival Guide, the best ways for families to prepare, train, pack, and survive everything, which you can check out on his website, michaelhawk.com. Every year, he works as a judge at the International Warrior Competition in Amman, Jordan, in addition to being a professor of survival at the American Survival Guide University in Florida. I am talking to Michael today to learn more about how he survived a rough childhood and what inspired him to become one of the most accomplished and famous survivalists on the globe. Was he driven on by ambition to do his best or ambition to be the best? After achieving so much, what drives him on further? And finally, what is the meaning of life for him? Enough talking. Let's start the interview. Thank you so much for being my guest today, Michael, all the way from Afghanistan. Thank you for having me. You are a very well-known person. When I was researching you, I found lots of information about you and lots of videos about you and all the television programs you've been on and all your accomplishments since you joined the army. But I couldn't find that much about you from the time before you joined the army. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. What was your family like growing up in Kentucky? 
sorry, I don't, I'm not laughing at you. I'm, I'm just laughing at the, the whole concept of my childhood. It wasn't very regular at all. And so it's not a, a straightforward answer. Basically, you know, we were very poor. It was a broken family, a, a typical, you know, soldier's life of moving around from base to base, uh, divorce early in the family. You know, I have siblings, brothers and sisters. I'm the eldest and, uh, you know, we all have different parentage. So it's quite convoluted and complex. But I think the skinny version is I was born in Kentucky. I grew up all around the Southeast as an army brat, primarily in Virginia, actually. And then I kind of got kicked out of junior high, never went to high school. Got lucky, scored pretty high on the Army test without any high school. They made an exception, allowed me into the military, and that kind of began my, you know, formal years, if you will. When you were growing up, did you spend a lot of time in the outdoors? Did you go hunting? Did you go fishing? (laughs) Well, I mean, we spent, uh, my brother and I were very close. We were only a year and a half apart, and he ended up going into the French Foreign Legion and then became a, a U.S. Army soldier in the 101st and went over to Kosovo. And then he became a contractor and worked with me in Haiti and Sierra Leone, West Africa. And then he went to become a contractor on his own, doing seven rotations in Afghanistan and Iraq, was blown up three times, two times. Guys in his vehicle with him uh, were killed by IEDs, improvised explosive devices. Oh, so, my God. Yeah. So he, you know, He's, as I say, you know, hard as woodpecker lips, and we're very close. So he and I spent a lot of time outdoors, but it wasn't because we were out in nature. It was because basically we often didn't have running water or electricity or a home to go to. So we stayed out on the streets, and sometimes we'd be on the streets, sometimes we'd be out in the woods. Uh, we did do a lot of fishing because that was readily available to us being poor as a way and means to get food. We didn't do much hunting because that would require some weapons and we just didn't have the money for that. But, you know, we did do some primitive hunting and, you know, catch squirrels and frogs and things of that nature to, you know, provide food. So in a fashion, we did a lot of hunting and fishing and staying outdoors. Does that answer you? That makes sense. So actually, you became a survivalist when you were a child, but because you actually needed to survive. Yes. Because you needed to, to stay alive. You needed to get food. That was actually where you first developed your skills. Exactly. And where it all brought into crystal clear focus uh, was about age 14. I had a job opportunity to make a whopping $100 a day doing some kind of construction work, uh, but it was away from home. You know, we didn't have cell phones in those days, if, if your younger generation can imagine. And, you know, Pay phones simply weren't all that readily available and they cost money. So basically, I went away for about two weeks to work on a job, didn't let my mother know, came back and she had been evicted and had to leave. And so when I returned home, there was, you know, I was locked out, which was easy enough to break in and then there was no power, no water. And so I slept on a cold floor. And then when the sun rose, I saw a note saying, you know, hey, Mike, I love you, but we had to move. So good luck. And so I ended up spending a winter surviving on the streets at age 14. And that's when I really refined my need to learn survival because I realized there was so much that I didn't know. And that began really a lifelong journey of learning about how to survive in every and any kind of environment, whatever it takes. 
Well, you had to be really tough to survive that. You wouldn't have made it out of being a teenager if you hadn't been tough. Well, you know, it's funny you should say it like that because I'm of a firm belief that there's nothing that I've done that everyone can't do. So I believe, you know, we all have survival in our DNA from our ancestors that it's in there and that most people, when pushed or forced, will rise to the occasion and do what it takes to survive. And I believe there's really two key components to that. And the first one is, if you have something to live for, and I tell people the strongest motive to fight to survive is love. You know, whatever you value most, your your parents, your kids, your your lover, whatever that is. And then the other thing that I try to teach people that, you know, you can survive, that's in your DNA, but to survive with honor, to make those tough decisions in that's in, really beautiful it, it is it, it and and this is why we're we're talking right now because your entire podcast is about you know beauty is eternal and i strongly believe that beauty is in everything and we make a choice to do the beautiful thing or the not beautiful thing and so what i tell people is when you're in those tough moments of survival do something that you believe is good and right so that If you survive, you survive with honor. And if you don't survive, you die with honor. And so I think that whole concept of everyone can survive, everyone can do it if they know what they believe in, and usually love is the strongest motivator, and then to survive with honor, to do the right things when no one's looking, even if you think it doesn't matter, because you have to live with you. And so those are the big things that I try to teach in all of my learning my whole life in that, you know, I spent decades now teaching to others that I tried to convey those two core messages because they are a little bit different than what most other people think about when they go to learn survival or what most teachers think about when they're focusing on the details of survival. But that's the big picture. I love your concepts. I think that's amazing. Can I ask you a personal question? You were no, saying that if you, <laughs> if you... You focused on love when you were younger in those difficult times. Was it love of your family? What did the, that love mean for you when you were very young? Well, I think you've hit a nail on the head, and that is a really good question, and then I'll explain why. In my youth, it was not love that was my motivation. In fact, it was the opposite, which is the second strongest motivator, which <sighs> is hate. And I was so angry at feeling rejected, feeling neglected, feeling abandoned, feeling that the world was unjust and and cruel and unkind. And I absolutely refused to let it beat me, to let it win. And so it was pure hate, frankly, that motivated me when I was younger. And then as I grew older and matured and realized through mistakes, sadly, and often at the, the expense of other people's pain, I learned that that battery of hate, as, as my wife jokingly calls it, that I tap into to convert that to the power of love. And I know that sounds all foo-foo, and I'm normally not a foo-foo guy, but it really does come down to that. And, and when I'm teaching survival, I tell a story, and I'll tell you this little anecdote, and it's true. It was 1988. I was teaching a class for intelligence school, special forces intelligence school. They said you had to give an impromptu class. And I had read the paper that morning about a man who 
was in a plane flying from California to Nevada, and his plane went down in the desert, and he survived, and they found him like 10 days later. And they asked him, you know, my God, how did you survive 10 days in the desert? And when he listed everything that he did, they were like, man, you did absolutely everything wrong. You drank your own urine. You worked in the middle of the day. You ate food when you didn't have water. What kept you alive? He said, and this is true. He's like, I'm going through a divorce and I will be damned if I'm going to die and let my ex-wife get everything. And that was his motivation. To live. <laughs> it was hate. And, and it dawned on me that the second most powerful emotion, and by God, if that's what you need to survive, then tap it. But the one that will trump everything is, in fact, love. So, you know, I get students all the time tell me, hey, I can't kill this little bunny rabbit. It's too soft and cuddly and cute. And, and I'm like, okay, here's a pen and paper. Who do you love the most in this world? And it'll normally be their spouse or their, their offspring. And they'll tell me the name. I'm like, okay, right, dear Johnny, dear Janie, I love you very much. But I love this rabbit more, and I'm willing to lay down and die and never see you again so that this little rabbit can live another day. And then they usually look at me, and they take the rabbit, and they kill it, and they eat it. So that's how I teach people, you know, use love as your great motivator when things are tough. But if you can't find that, then then reach for that second one. Hey, don't let anything beat you. Even though you got to respect Mother Nature, sometimes human will can overcome the most improbable things just by our pure determination. And so these are the the tenets of survival that I try to teach people. That's super interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that leads me to another question. It's not totally on the topic we're going into, but do you think love and hate are two sides of the same coin? And that's why they're the two most powerful things you can tap into? Yes, quite simply, they are. Mm-hmm. Very nice. <laughs> Going back to you growing up, you had a really tough childhood is what it sounds like. And you decided to enter the military. So your father was a military man, I take it, if you were a military brat. Why did you decide to enter the army? A brilliant question again. Good on you. So yes, and, and let me caveat everything and, and say, you know, I had I had wonderful moments with, you know, friends, family, relatives. I, I had tender moments from people that stepped in at really critical times in my life where I could have very easily been dead. Um, I mean, I was shot and stabbed before I ever joined the army. I had friends that were killed and were in prison for killing long before I joined the army. And so if it hadn't been for a few key people in my life that extended the hand of love, I probably would not be here today. So, you know, I, I just want to caveat that, you know, the whole childhood wasn't just full of awful experiences. There were many good experiences in there as well. And and both my parents are are wonderful people. They just, they also had rough childhoods. And so, you know, you only know as much as you experience in life. And so I, when I got to the point where I was kicked out of junior high school, I didn't want to go back to high school, even though I was a straight A student in the chess club and all that. And to answer your question, I didn't really ever care for the military. But what I learned from simply looking at life and my life was that I needed to do something to break the cycle of poverty where I was not going to survive adolescence. And so I determined, because I did not have any wealthy you know, benefactors or relatives, that the only thing I could do to change my circumstance was education. And the only way that I could get an education at that point in time was to join the military. 
And so that's why I joined the Army, to get a college education so I could then change my life. And when I got in, a whole new world opened up to me. And of course, that took me down a very different direction, which still led to me getting my degrees along the way. That was a very smart move. Well, like I said, and and I try to explain this to a lot of my special forces brethren and my military friends, that I was fortunate enough that I scored high on the test. Otherwise, I would not have been able to go in. And I was fortunate enough that God had blessed me with a physical body that could do the things the military required and meet the demands of the special forces training. Not everyone has those physical or mental blessings. So not everyone has those paths open to them. And so when I I see sometimes my my military brothers judging harshly on others because they haven't done what they've done, I'm like, man, not everyone has the blessings that we have. So, you know, put it in perspective. And what I try to always point out to everybody, everyone's given gifts and burdens. And the secret to life is to figure out what your weaknesses are and work around them and what your strengths are and work with them. And as long as everyone does their best every day, then that's really all you can do with your life. And you can live your whole life being satisfied with yourself, knowing that you did not let the sun go down on any day in your life, that you didn't do your very best, whatever it was, whether it's pushing a lawnmower or, you know, bagging groceries or being a trash guy or whatever, or just not being angry with someone because you don't like something they did just simply because you didn't understand who they are, what they've been through or what their motives were. So I try to teach people that everybody has a story, everyone has problems, and all we can do is be as loving and as kind as we can every day with everyone. That's very motivational and also very non-judgmental. I think you're right. We don't know what someone's life has been like. We haven't walked in their shoes. So when we judge them, we're being really unfair because we just don't understand. There's like a whole world behind them we just can't see into. Absolutely. You're so articulate. (laughs) Well, the thing is, you know, I've been in nine different conflicts. I've seen many horrible things and I've, I've had to reconcile it all in my little pea brain so that I can understand life, where it all fits, where does all this horror and death and destruction all fit into grand scheme. And, you know, it, occurred to me as I tried to make peace with it all so I could live in the moment every day as a still whole and happy person that, you know, some people lose their way. Some people do evil. Some people are forced into evil or they believe that they have no other choice. And even in the evil that they do, it's been said before, even in the worst of times, you can see the best of people And so sometimes we only find our our best part of ourselves in those worst of times. So I try to put it in, in context that when evil is being done out there in the world, whether it's an individual committing a horrible murder and crime or a group of people out there committing horrible mass murders and crimes, then this is a chance for the good people who have found a way to understand life in a good way to say, no, we don't accept that. It's not right. And not only is it not right, we're not going to tolerate it and we're going to take an action against it because we believe so strongly that it's not right. And so as we as human beings, you know, I always jokingly say as a human race, we're still in our adolescence. We may survive it. We may not. But right now we're defining who we are as a race by what we accept, 
what we tolerate, what we cultivate, and what we encourage. So that's how I put it all into perspective to help me deal with all the ugly things that I've seen, that every life matters, everything that is living is precious, and we should be thankful for every moment and every day and just keep focus on trying to live moment by moment, doing good in that moment, and in that way, you live a full and beautiful life, which again is why I liked what your podcast is all about, that that beauty is eternal is, is a recurring theme that resonates with me. That's really interesting what you're saying, that when people commit evil deeds, it's actually the opportunity for someone who wants to do something good to bring out the best good in them in order to still see that someone's doing something that's really wrong and still be fair enough to even understand them and but still act. Yep. Wow. Seriously, I'm just in awe of everything you're saying. It's amazing. I think you're right. (laughs) (laughs) I I think I'm right, but um, the sergeant points out to me often, and that's the wifey, that I'm usually not right. She is. But but yeah, I, I feel like I'm thankful, you know, because a lot of times I pray, I believe in a great spirit of universal goodness. I choose to call it God. And I believe that me being blessed to live beyond some of those extreme situations I experienced was a chance for me to learn and understand so that hopefully I could pass on some of that learning and understanding. And in that way, I feel like my primary job is actually a teacher, not I mean, survival is the platform. It's the vehicle, the mechanism. But the actual teachings of survival, I believe, can apply to everyone in every walk of life, in everything in their everyday world. So that's kind of why I'm just thankful for what I've got. And I try to pass it on and and teach because one day, you know, I'll be pushing up daisies. And if I can make a couple of people's lives a little bit better or put them on a little bit better path, then I feel like I'll have done something with my time here. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially in our modern world, because a lot of us live quite cut off from nature, from Earth. And technology is so important that people don't always value what it is to be connected to the earth and what it actually means to survive together with the earth because they don't need to anymore. It does seem like that. And, and, you know, it's funny because the technology is such a new thing. And and I think we as human beings, um, as, as a race, are figuring it out. And right now, I mean, the internet, for example, can be used for great good, but also for great evil. People can use it to find out all kinds of knowledge or to find out all kinds of negative things. And interesting part is, I think it's kind of like, you know, if you're a little kid and you get your first like candy bar or something, you know, it's like, wow, this is a lot sweeter than an apple or a strawberry. In some ways, it seems more appealing, but ultimately, it's not as good for you as the, the fruit. But it still has a strong appeal. So I'm hoping that through the exploration of the internet, in some ways we get more connected, people become more isolated because heck, you don't have to go out into the woods anymore. You can watch videos about it and see pictures about it all day long. And that's never the same. It's like watching a love story is never the same as living a love story. So I just hope we as a collective group of entities can figure it out in this nascent stage of our technological advancing and find a way to actually really connect not only with each other, but with Earth 
and Mother Nature and all the all the creatures that are in it. And that's a very good point because, like you said, technology is very new. It's still in the very early stages, but our bodies are, you know, quite primitive. What we've genetically inherited, they haven't changed that much as as rapidly. So it's important we don't lose that connection to Earth because that's what we're built to be connected to. Just because we can call people right now doesn't mean our, well, I mean, our brains are actually changing, but it doesn't mean that our whole system has been rewired to be part exactly. of a machine. Exactly. And, and, and I, I try to remind people of, of all these simple things. It's like, hey, we're all still human. We all still need to eat and drink. We all still need to breathe and sleep. You know, we all still need food, water, fire, shelter. These fundamental things have not changed despite whether you believe we were created or we evolved. The bottom line is our human needs are still the same universally. And I think that's one of the things that makes it really easy for survival as a way to connect people. Because when it when you take people out into the woods, out to Mother Nature, out of Fort Living Room, you know, we bring our baggage with us. And so when you strip away all the clutter, all the distractions, you can focus on what really the problems are and what really matters. And then when you get out in nature and you look at, oh, this is what my problem is, this is what I really care about, all of a sudden the solutions become a lot more clear, a lot easier, and a lot more attainable. And then people can go back into their worlds and hopefully live a better, more full and rich life. Because by changing the perspective, the problem might look a bit more like an anthill instead of a mountain. Exactly. I want to talk a little bit more about you. So once you joined the military, you had a very storied career and you rose a lot through the ranks. Could you talk a little bit about what those years were like, about how you started and what you did next? I mean, I know we could probably talk for three hours about it. But like, give us uh, an overview of what that period in your life was like. Sure. I mean, I started off in the Army on active duty, and I then got off of active duty to go into the reserve and go to college. And then after I got my college, I found a good place in the National Guard where I could kind of do my civilian life and my military life. And that worked for me for a while. And then I ended up with a break in service where I started chasing wars, so to speak, as a contractor. Um, and then, of course, 9-11 happened and I came back into the military as an officer, served another 10 years and then ended up by accident going into TV. And so the details of those big picture steps was when I joined the Army, I was a, a, just a radio operator and then I got more and more opportunities to go to schools, to go to training, to just advance myself. And I'd never had that before. And I didn't think I could do all those things. I, you know, uh, grew up with a somewhat negative uh, self perspective from, you know, how people viewed me and judged me with dirty clothes and, and whatnot. So I just kept saying, okay, if you're going to offer me something, I'll try. And I refused to quit and I refused to fail. And so before I, I knew it, I had become a special forces communicator, medic, intelligence guy, rated in seven languages, promoted up to a sergeant first class, up to captain, and you know, been around the world and done all these things. And before I knew it, I had become that guy, like, wow, that guy's done a lot of stuff. But in perspective, 
all the guys in my special forces community, whether they were, you know, SEALs or, or pararescue guys or force recon guys, but primarily, you know, Rangers, Green Berets, Delta Force guys. I mean, all of the guys in my circles are not a lot different than I am. They're all incredible, amazing people. So really, I count myself blessed to be able to meet the challenges that were given to me and honored to be around such great people. And I do believe, you know, you you really do learn and grow from others more than anything else. And so I've been very, very fortunate to be able to do all those things. But it, it wasn't a plan. I wish I could say I was smart enough to say it was some strategy that I devised when I was younger. I just <laughs> was blessed with opportunities. And while I figured, you know what, I'll probably fail, but I'm going to try anyway, because to me, not trying was something I didn't want to live with, you know, whereas if I tried my best and I failed, I could live with that. So well, I just it's still tried. success in some way. Exactly. And so, and then, you know, the more you do and you're like, oh, wow, I could do that. Well, maybe I can do this. And then maybe I could do the next thing before you know it. As you said, you know, you're, but reverse now, you know, I'm on the top of the mountain. I'm like, wow. And, and the view is really great. And yeah, it's a big ass mountain, pardon my French, but, um, <laughs> you know, it still was achieved by small little steps, you know, a little bit at a time. It sounds like you are not the person who says I'm going to get to the top, no matter who I have to cut, what body I have to walk over, who I have to push out of the way, I'm going to get to the top. Sounds to me like you were just dedicated and really interested in what you were doing and you got to the top because you worked hard, but not because your ultimate goal was to get to the very top. Well, again, I commend you for, you know, really good statements and, and observations because, you know, I made a, a decision a long time ago that, okay, you know, I could lie, cheat and steal and hurt people to try to achieve, you know, what I wanted. But then I would have to live with myself and that would be ugly. And I did not want to do that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've done plenty of ugly and made lots of mistakes and hurt lots of people along the way. And I'm sad about it and I apologize to them, but it wasn't ever intentional. And so I made that decision that I'm going to try to be good no matter what the cost, no matter if I don't succeed, I am comfortable living with myself being good and poor or unsuccessful rather than being wealthy and successful, but being a horrible, mean, ugly, nasty person. So I made a decision a long time ago. I make a point of trying to always be honorable, trying to always be honest, trying to never take advantage or do anybody wrong. And so I think the reason I've done well is just because I think that resonates with most people. When people meet others, we, we have feelings, we have perceptions. And I think, you know, we're all fine the same baseline of being good, being true, being honest, hardworking, dedicated, believing in something, I think that resonates with all people. And I think that's how some of us succeed because others see that in you, they admire that. And so they do their little bits and pieces to help you. So, you know, no person who's ever been successful can say with honesty that they did it all by themselves. It's always a lot of other people that help us along the way. And so, yeah, I think when I look back and say, yeah, I've been fortunate enough to do a lot of things, it's because I believe and I worked hard, but other people saw that and they helped me move forward. You mentioned that in your time in the army, you had a lot of colleagues who had similar viewpoints to you. Did you experience a lot of camaraderie there? Um, well, you did say that. <laughs> 
similar. Um, let me let me rephrase that. Then I've had a lot of special forces brothers who have similar skills and abilities and and are amazing people. I will say my views tend to be a little bit different than most of my brothers. Okay, so. Oh, my goodness. Like, you know, I do not want to get into politics or religion, but in the States right now, there's a very divisive mindset. People tend to either be one side or the other. And and I don't believe polarized. Just like, look, I've never voted based on party. That would be to be a blind sheep. I believe that you vote based on platform and person what you believe. So on the one hand, you know, you may be pro-gun. On the other hand, you may be pro-choice. That doesn't make you one party or the other. But we like simple labels that we can understand. And when you have a message from leadership that says, you're either with me or not with me, I don't believe in that mindset. I believe in the simple American statement, united we stand. And everyone else knows the rest. So that's it. A leader should unite. We as people should unite. There are so many Americans out there and so many of them are wonderful, beautiful people. And just because we don't believe the same way, I'm not going to judge them or see them as lesser or a bad person. I'm just going to say, okay, I respect you. I love you. I appreciate you. As long as you're not trying to hurt me and mine physically, like I draw the line at physical violence, touching people to enforce a belief or because you disagree with a thought, that's when you cross the line and you lose the moral high ground. So back to what I was saying, I am a man amongst giants in my community. All of my brethren and sisters are amazing, dedicated humans. As far as my beliefs now, (laughs) they tend to, I think, fall more in the 10% category rather than the majority category. Just to be clear. Well, I'm probably in the same category as you, to be honest. But I think that the media right now has a lot to do with why there's such a polarization. Here's the thing, you know, and back to the the military concept and, and what I've learned is that it is amazing to me. I mean, I've read the history on most of the great world leaders, most of the great military leaders throughout history, and it has always been amazing to me what a difference one human being makes. And so when I when I look at a business, when I look at a military organization, when I look at any nonprofit charity, I always look at the leadership because it absolutely defines and drives the whole attitude of the operation. And so I would put the current polarity within the media, not so much on the shoulders of the media, though I hold them responsible because they they have a mandate by the freedoms guaranteed by our constitution of the press, they have an obligation and they are somewhat self-policing to be neutral and report truth and fact. Now, the current leadership has very much been about dividing and polarizing. And so I think the primary news outlets have fallen into that line of thought. However, I also believe we as humans, we make mistakes both as individuals and as collectives, as societies and as a race. And so I believe in pendulums swinging, you know, from one extreme to the other until we find balance. So I'm likening what we're going through right now as a nation as a simple pendulum swing. And everybody's kind of taking a look at it saying, hmm, maybe this isn't so right. Maybe this isn't how we should be. And I'm hoping that it will come back to a more balanced 
uh, state of affairs. So that's my hope. And this is the thing that bringing it back on topic to survival is what I tell people is you're going to make mistakes out there when you're surviving. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get sad. You're going to suffer. But I don't know what it is about human beings. We tend to learn the most from our mistakes, not our successes. You know, if we succeed, it's like, oh, I got that. And then we don't lock it in. We don't study it. Whereas when you make a mistake in survival, like, ooh, this didn't work. I didn't get the fire. Now I got to sleep through the night freezing cold and miserable. Tomorrow, I'm going to do something better. I'm going to do something differently. And so I take that and apply it to where we are. And I, I have absolute faith in humanity, belief in mankind, and hope in human beings that everyone has that sort of innate hardwired compass, if you will, that's calibrated to be good. So I have faith that we will figure it out. We will get back to balance. So don't despair too much. We just have to (laughs) bide our time and be balanced. And, you know, when I have discussions with my brothers and with strangers, you know, I'm never judgmental. And I always just say, I hear what you're saying. I understand. I feel a little bit differently. And here's why. Some people get really aggressive. I just lost a good friend over it, which really blew my mind. I mean, wow. he got so aggressive about it. And I said, look, I'm not angry. I'm not going to ban, block, delete you or anything like that. But if you want to disagree with me and censor me and, and judge me, okay. And I know in time, if he realizes that that was a mistake, he'll come back and he'll say, I'm sorry. And I'll be like, brother, there's nothing to be sorry about. you know. <laughs> and if he ever comes back, well, then I wish him well. And that's the extent of it. And so I think and I hope and I pray that we as a country can get back to a path of united we stand more than the divided we fall apart. I agree with you. Michael, have you thought about running for politics? Oh, my God, woman. No, thank you. Not ever. No. You know, the the whole thing. You're very articulate, though. Here's the thing. I'm a believer. I'm passionate. I see myself as a teacher. I think my gift is I can look at big things and break them down into small ways because I have a pea brain. It helps me to understand it. And so when I teach, I try to teach in a way that you don't need to take notes. If I say it, if it's right, it will resonate. If it resonates and makes sense, you don't need to write it down. It's already in you. I just opened up the door. So that said, the whole thing about politics is I believe there's just too much compromise, too much deal making that has to go on. I'll scratch your back and you'll scratch mine. I won't look at this if you don't look at that. And I, I don't think that's the way that we should move forward. I think everything should be based on not what's good for us, but what's good for our country. And so if I had my way, I would have all politicians live on minimum wage and everybody be limited to terms. And if they took any benefits from businesses, they would go to jail so that the only people that would come into politics would be people who care about the nation and are there to serve. And I think sometimes people forget that in our country, politicians are supposed to serve the people, not the other way around. But, you know, short answer is no, thank you. I I don't want anything to do with politics, but it's a kind compliment. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. So let's go back to your time in the Special Forces. Can you share your best experience when you were there? Best experience, because there's so many um, really- Oh, you can share share a couple yeah. then that stick well, out to you. Yeah, I don't want to put people to sleep more than I have. Or make their ears. <laughs> no, um, this is super interesting. <laughs> well, I'll tell two things, a, a good and a bad, you know, just to kind of, you know, show the, the differences in, in the extreme spectrum. So- 
when I joined Special Forces, you know, I was in selection just like, you know, all the other guys. And, it, you know, it was a fairly large class. It was about 360 guys or something. And after you go through all the training and everything, there were only three of us that were left that graduated on the first try. And, and that's not to say that half of those guys didn't graduate at some point later. It was just me and two other guys that graduated at the original 300 and something that started. And wow. It was interesting to me because I looked to my left, and I won't say the guy's names, but uh, the one guy looked like, sadly, he he fell from the top of a very tall, ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down. I mean, he was misshapen. He had an unpleasant last name. He stood funny. He talked funny. And everything about him was just wrong and odd. And then on the other side of me was this guy that looked like he was made from like a Ken Barbie mold. He was perfect, handsome, smiled, and he could run forever, never sweat, do a thousand push-ups, never get tired. And I'm like, wow, so this is interesting. Me as a young man, you know, I think I, I was not 21. I had the most odd and unexpected guy and the most perfect and amazing guy on my left and right. And then me somewhere in the middle. And so it dawned on me that, you know, the thing about special forces is that there's no cut of cloth. There's no mold. It really comes down to heart and mind. It doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. What matters is what you believe and what your will to survive and to succeed is. And so it was a really big epiphany for me. And from an early age, it set the tone for me to have a balanced perspective because you cannot judge people by how they look. So that was my, like, really, I think, a really glorious moment in Special Forces. And then a really heartbreaking moment, which actually changed my life path because I, I had earned my undergraduate degree in biology, pre-med biology. I had taken my MCATs. I'd been accepted to three medical schools. Nothing special, just, you know, bottom of the rung, but, you know, medical schools nonetheless. And I was on a mission in El Salvador where we were... You know, the Civil War had just ended. We had occupied a, a former rebel headquarters and we had turned it into a clinic and we were treating people. People were lined up for days outside of our clinic. We would literally treat them in our cots all day long till we just couldn't do it anymore. We'd close the doors, pass out on the cot, wake up the next morning, open the doors and start treating people. And so a nun had brought a little girl to me and she had a high fever from a disease and she had simply had the high fever for too many days before she got to me. And so her brain was already cooked. It was, in other words, it was too late for me to do anything. And so she died and it really broke my heart. And, and I, it made me decide not to pursue medicine as a career because I realized I could never know it all. I could study my whole life and still fail to save someone's life because I couldn't have all the knowledge to save everybody. And so it made me change my life course which was interesting because now I still, you know, I, I'm a paramedic. I do combat search and rescue for the State Department, you know, in a war zone now, and I feel blessed and honored, but it's only a part of my life and my life's path. So those were probably two really big moments, really positive, amazing, and then a really sad, heartbreaking one, but both of which came to me through Special Forces, and, and I feel blessed to have had them. And... Did that have anything to do with what you studied? You studied biology and family therapy. So you went off the medicine track? 
it was that little girl dying that changed my path from going down the road of becoming a physician. I still wanted to be a teacher, a helper, or a healer. And so I decided, because later I went into Sierra Leone as a contractor, it was a horrible war where they were killing women and children and chopping, making the children chop off their parents, you know, limbs. And Oh, my God. Um, it was brutal. It was the worst conflict I'd ever been in. And so from that, I decided that these child soldiers, there's got to be a way to salvage them as human beings. And so I decided I wanted to pursue a PhD in family counseling, specifically towards um, the repatriation of child soldiers into society. And and back in, in those days, in the uh, late 1990s, the uh, uh, University of California actually declined my thesis on that and said it really wasn't needed. But, you know, I still got my master's in family counseling. And my my mission now is that I still want to work with troubled teens because I was one and show them that there is a way, uh, a path of hope, a path of love, a path of good that they can all achieve and attain. And it doesn't require you to have any extra special brain power, physical capabilities. It's mostly just about deciding in your heart and mind that that's what you want to be and then taking those opportunities that are available to you on your path, whatever they are. And no matter what, if you choose to be good, you'll end up being good. And so that's kind of why I ended up going into family counseling to try to help youth because one day I'll, you know, I'll be dead. I'll be pushing up daisies and it doesn't matter how much money you got or how much junk you got. What matters is what difference you made. How many lives did you make better? You know, are you remembered in a good way once you're gone? And so to me, that's the most valuable thing that there is. And so that's why I just try to live my life that way. I've been in so many wars. I didn't think I'd live this long. So it's like, you know what? I know one day I'm going to be dead. I just want to do the best I can by as many as I can before my time is done. That's it. Well, to that extent, you're involved in various charities, specifically a couple for helping teenagers. Yes. Now, thanks for bringing that Gold up. Gold Star those... Teen Adventures and Healing yes. the Wounds are a couple. Well, and, and the thing is, those are things that other human beings decided that they wanted to do. And they asked me to become involved, for which I was, I was honored and blessed to be able. So, yeah, the Gold Star Teens is a wonderful, wonderful charity that helps the children whose parents were in special ops and died in battle. And so what they do, and it's it's a husband and wife team with their son and daughter. And the guy is also, you know, Kent Solheim is a, a, a special forces officer, an amazing guy who lost his leg in battle. And he's still serving with one leg. Um, wow. and, even, and in the family spare time, they take these children out hunting and fishing and hiking and camping and scuba diving and doing the things that their fathers and mothers would have done with them if they were still alive. So for me to be involved with that is just, it gives me goosebumps to even talk about it. And then the other one, Healing the Wounds, is kind of the same thing, but for the firemen and the uh, EMS and the police who also lose their lives in the service of others. And so they take their children out into nature, like in Alaska or out in Maine, and help them reconnect with life and find love and beauty in the world again after losing their parents. And both of them basically do the two things I believe in the most, which is let them appreciate nature and beauty, find the beauty in life and the beauty in themselves so that they can continue to live life in a beautiful way. So they're wonderful charities and wonderful people. Well, that sounds really beautiful. And as you were saying before, 
the point of life is not how much money you earn. It's actually what you contribute to the world. Yep. What positivity you bring into it. In the end, we're all going to die. You know, it doesn't matter if you're rich, if you're poor, you're going to die. But what we'll live on after you is are the good things that you can do. Exactly. Which is, again, you know, that's the, the nature of your entire podcast. You know, Beauty is Eternal. And that's why we're talking, because I'm like, that young lady's on to a very good message for people. So oh. thanks for having me. Oh, well, I'm so excited to have you here. I want to switch a little bit and talk about your career in TV. You mentioned earlier that you didn't plan to go into TV. How did that happen? Yeah, that that was a, a, a total fluke. My first TV show was in 1998 on MTV's Road Rules. And it just so happened, two years before that, Desert Storm kicked off. They needed medics. So I became a medic. Then the war was over. And so I was like, man, you know, I, I wanted to do more. So I went to work in a war zone. It was a contract in Azerbaijan uh, for a government agency. And it was very, very intense, very brutal, very ugly. And so from that experience, I decided I wanted to do something nice and beautiful. So I started a survival camp in Costa Rica teaching outdoor skills to kids. And that's when MTV Road Rules found us down there. And they said, hey, would you help us out with the show? And we're like, sure. And then they're like, hey, would you mind being on camera playing uh, like, you know, the teacher for the guys? And I'm like, sure. And they're like, would you mind being on camera being the bad guy? We need a bad guy to, you know, graft to the kid. And, like, sure. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, anybody wants to pay me to be a good guy and a bad guy. I'm like, yeah, I'm down for that. So I did. It, it was just good fun. I thoroughly expected the TV people to be really, you know, different. But it, it turned out that we were we had a lot in common. I always kind of jokingly say that. TV people are a lot like special forces people in that they can go crazy places and they can make amazing things happen. The only thing difference is, you know, they shoot people's faces and we shoot people in their faces. But I know it's kind of brutal, but it's funny. Um, Getting along with them very well. And they asked me to help out produce a couple of shows here and there, you know, a couple years later. And then before you know it, they asked me to become a producer for them. And in Truth, that's what I was doing when 9-11 happened. I was a producer for ABC, living in L.A. as a single father with two teenage sons. And then 9-11 happened. And, you know, my friends in New York called me when the first building got hit. I woke up. My sons woke up. We watched the second building get hit. And I told them, look, guys, we're going to go to war and they're going to call me back. I can get out of it because I have, you know, I'm a single parent or I can go fight. And they said, dad, you need to go kick some bad guy butt. And so I went back on active duty for two years in, in the war in Afghanistan. And then something interesting happened because of the news, because of the internet, back to the, the technology thing we we're talking about. You know, the Green Berets were all on TV, riding in on horseback, overthrowing the Taliban. And so the media was kind of looking for Green Berets and they really didn't know any except for me. So one thing led to another. They said, hey, would you mind being a subject matter expert here or a commentator there? Or, hey, would you mind doing a bit of a role on this or that? And then they said, you know, hey, man, you know, you're OK on TV. Would you if you made a show, what would you make a show about? And I was like, well, I could teach survival with my wife and I could do like special ops competition to find out who like the best of the best is. And so that's how it happened. You know, now it's like I've got like six different series under my belt, um, over 50 different shows, one film and 
like I said, it was all just, it just kind of happened. It certainly wasn't a plan, but I looked at it like this. I've always been a teacher. Green Berets jokingly say that we are teachers. You know, we teach a man to fish. We don't just give him a fish. And so when I had the opportunity to teach people on TV, it was just a way to reach more people. And that's why I went ahead and, and did it. And that's kind of what I've been doing ever since. You know, we had a big fight with uh, Discovery Channel over a really bad person and, and some bad decisions they made. And we suffered for it for a few years. But I think the core truth is that, you know, we are good people and we've been doing good things and that we have something that people find interesting. So we've had more and more shows coming back to us to ask us to do things. And, and there are a handful of other shows uh, that we're working on right now. So we've been very blessed with this opportunity to share with people and to teach people. And I think a big message in this is that everybody will go through a hard time in their life. You know, ours has, has been five or six years, but it's come back around and now we're being blessed again. And so I think the thing is, no matter how hard things get, how hard you get knocked down, just don't quit. Keep being you. Don't give up on your principles. And sooner or later, things will turn around. And even if they don't, you still live every day happy with yourself when you wake up because you know you did the right thing and you're still doing the right thing. And they don't win because they can't change you. You're going to be good no matter what. And so that would be my, my ending message I'd leave you with about the whole TV thing. <laughs> so you've done a number of different programs where you go into the jungle and you have to survive. You've also gone with your wife. Am I correct if I say that you will be able to survive. Even if the situation's really dire, you're not seriously putting your life at risk when you do that. Is that correct? Or would you say that every time you do it, you really are putting your life at risk? Oh, yes, the, the, the latter. I mean, just so you understand, when we would go out to do these shows, um, you know, it was important to us that the integrity of what we were teaching was good and true and that the, the way that we were living was authentic and legitimate. So I have lots of friends on TV, and some of them do things that are very, what I would consider over-the-top, dramatic Hollywood, and frankly, not sound survival principles to teach. I know other people who have done tremendous misleading fakery on their shows. And so when we would do our shows, we would try to keep it everything as authentic and legitimate as possible, which meant, you know, we were exposed to uh, snake bites, to falling off cliffs, to dying in fires or in caves or in currents. And so um, it was so intense that every time before we would go out to film, the wife would be in tears because we were not 100 percent sure that we would be coming back to our son. Wow. So, so the in, risks are really real. Yes. And we did a lot of things that no one ever did on TV before and still haven't. And some things were groundbreaking and now they've been duplicated, which, you know, I won't get into because it feels a little too much like, you know, tooting my own horn. But the bottom line is we tried our best to do everything we could with as much veracity as possible. And that meant, yes, we did risk our lives on a great many of those shows. And in some ways, we're kind of glad that we're not doing that. We kind of feel like you know, we've taught pretty much everything that you can teach as far as the principles. Everything else is just kind of a variation on that. So now we have a couple of shows that are in the 
development stages now that we feel is kind of like the next step, the, the evolution of, of survival, if you will. Can you talk that, a little bit about them? Can you give us a preview? You know, the whole thing about when, when a show's still in development, you kind of, you know, make you sign documents saying you're not going to Oh, yeah, sell. and yeah, you keep it under wraps. But, and so, so yeah, so basically it, it would be Ruth and I working together. It would still be teaching survival in a fashion, and it's very much applicable to everyone in their everyday lives. So we feel like it is it is the next step from that show, taking it to further people's education, if you will, and making their lives better again, but this time without quite as much risk as in those previous shows. Well, you've been married to your wife, Ruth, for a number of years now. You guys have worked together. Do you think that she could survive some of this stuff if she were without you? Is she so well-trained at this point that she could manage everything by herself? I absolutely believe that to be the case. Now, and, and here's an interesting little piece of information for you. So special operations people go to what they call SEER school, Survival, Escape, Resistance, Evasion. And it's a three-week school, and it mostly focuses on, you know, a code of conduct, becoming a prisoner of war, those types of things to make sure that people survive with honor. But they spend a few days teaching some, you know, primitive survival skills. And then you got to spend a few days kind of on the run while people are trying to capture you. It's a good school. And most people consider it one of their most emotional schools because, you know, most everybody cries at some point in that school, which is, you know, a big statement for big, tough guys. But at the end of the day, the actual survival training is really only about three days. And they're doing it with some gear, like their knives and their canteen and their canteen cup and their ponchos and their magnesium bar. So when I took Ruth out on all these missions around the world, in the jungle, in the desert, in the Arctic, you know, in the, in the islands, you know, we were out there with the clothes on our back and a knife. And the only reason we used a knife was because I could improvise a knife everywhere, but it's a lot slower for filming. So they decided to go ahead and use a knife just to, you know, speed up making the shelter, making the tools, making the traps, hunting, that kind of thing. So putting it all in perspective, every one of those missions was three to five days. And my wife has done those missions for real over two dozen times. So in some ways, she's got many, many times more experience than most of the special ops guys in survival. So when you ask me, can that woman survive on her own? I have no doubt. In any environment, I think she would survive and do well. Well, they say that one of the best ways to get to know somebody is to bring them into a stressful situation. So I think you two must know each other pretty well. Like all the good, the bad, the tough sides, everything. Yeah. And and thankfully, she she still loves me. (laughs) All my faults, and they are many. And so I'm very lucky and blessed man and so I just I love her to bits and I'm I'm super thankful and she's given me a wonderful young man who is a quite high maintenance and beautiful soul and he brings joy to our lives every day even though he's a pain in the butt every day so yeah <laughs> we've we've been through a lot it's coming up on 15 years now wow well happy upcoming anniversary thank you yes I'm getting ready to take her to Hawaii that sounds nice Yes, she's not been. As ironic as that is, I've been to Hawaii a few times, and she's been all around the world. Like, I've only been to maybe 30, 40 countries. She's been to like 90 countries. You know, it's ridiculous. But she's not been to Hawaii, so I'm kind of laughing at her, and I'm going to take her there. Oh, that's very romantic. And hopefully you won't make her drink her own urine. (laughs) 
Uh, no, but you know, no, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> <laughs> not a survival trip, a romantic trip. No, we'll be drinking the strongest thing. We'll be drinking probably pina coladas. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a few more questions about your feelings and your beliefs. Is there anything that you're truly afraid of? Are there any fears you've had to overcome? To answer your question about what is it that I'm afraid of, it's very simple. In one way, I'm not afraid of anything. I mean, if there's an animal, if there's a man, they live and they can die. And so if they can die, then I have a chance to fight and survive. So whether it's a predator trying to kill me or just a big animal trying to defend itself or a bad human who's trying to hurt me or someone else that I care about, I feel like I can face them and I can take them. And if it's my fate, I will. And if it's my fate not to, then I won't. But I'm not afraid. Okay. But I am afraid to fail, to fail those that I love, to fail doing what I believe is right, to fail doing what I believe is good. And it's that fear of failure that drives me so hard to do whatever it takes to not fail. And when I share that concept with people, I, I try to put it in perspective of the military and combat. And when you speak to most men from World War II right on up to modern times who have been given awards, medals for, for being valiant, for being brave, and when you talk to them humbly, personally, privately, they will almost always say they weren't thinking about the medal, they weren't thinking about surviving, they sometimes weren't even thinking about the objective. They were thinking about not failing their brothers, not letting down those men on their left and right that they were in the battle with on the battlefield. And so I found it a very interesting anecdote of life that most of these things we considered the bravest human moments were not because of a great belief in anything other than love for their, their brothers on their left and right and not wanting to fail them. Well, you mentioned love and hate being strong motivators. Mm -hmm. Would you also add fear in that? And through overcoming that fear, I guess that becomes courage. Would it be up there for you with strong motivators? Sure, absolutely. I mean, you know, and you can speak to any interrogator and he'll tell you fear is definitely a strong motivator. But when, when, I, when I speak about fear, I talk about fear of failure. And the reason why that's so fearful is because you don't want to fail those you love. So fear is the indirect, love is the direct uh, motive. Okay, gotcha. So it's connected to that. It's part yes. of that. And likewise, you can take the, the argument the other way and say fear of letting the enemy win so that hate can drive you. So they're both pretty close. What I tell people is, hey, you find what works for you and you tap it. As long as you're using it for a greater good and you're not doing anything that's dishonorable, hey, then you drive on with your mission. You survive with honor. We've gone over this a little bit or we've touched on it, but I wanted to ask you about the meaning of life for you. Because it sounds like for you, you're very let's say, moral, you have some very strong ethics that guide you. Could you talk a little bit about what guides you and what life really means for you? I mean, it's a great question. And I think 
its scope is, is so grand. If I had to try to you know, make it small, I would say that the meaning of life to me is to learn. And the purpose of it is to find out your purpose. You got to find out what your strengths, what your weaknesses are, what your gifts are, and then how can you apply those gifts to making the world a little bit better so that when you leave, you've left it better off than what it was when you came in. So in a nutshell, it's, it's just all about just trying to make the world better. Find out what you can do, what you're, what you're able to do. Try to improve people's lives and move on. And that's what moves the whole human race forward, I believe. So does that answer your question? That's really our purpose is to move us all further forward into the future. Yeah, that answers my question. It's a very good answer. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where, you know, I mean, if you just take your little life, yeah, you know, the whole thing is you want to learn things, you want to grow, you want to have a good life of pleasant experiences, you know, and there's going to be negatives and things that aren't as positive. But again, it's it's how we respond to those, how we perceive those. If we choose to turn them into positives or find the good within the bad, learn from it and then bring that good learning to others, then I think in doing so, we've made the most of our time here. We've given our lives purpose to make other people's lives better, not only while we're here, but once we're gone. And in that way, you kind of, you live forever. If you've made the world a little bit better and moved it forward, I mean, that's the closest to eternal life in a physical form that we could ever hope for. So there you go. Just do your best to make the world better. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that statement. Before I let you go, do you have any projects coming up that you want to talk about apart from these TV shows that you can't talk so much about? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the thing about the shows, I mean, part of the reason we're, we're chatting is because I, you know, I have some publicity from my things that I've done. So the shows I've already spoken about, you know, I have a family survival book that's out right now. It's a new release. And uh, Ruth and I wrote it together with our son and our friends and our family. And it's a really good book. Um, it's just called Family Survival. And it's you know under my name, Michael Hawk or Ruth England. And I also have a, a language book that's re-released. I wrote it in 1999. And it was a bestseller for 20 years. But back in those days, we were still listening to LPs and cassettes. And some of your your listeners won't even know what those are. So um, this is a re-release with modern chapters on all the modern technology that, that's out there. So uh, I'm really pleased about that because I believe when you learn another language, you kind of gain another soul. The more languages you speak, the more people you can communicate with, the more you understand the more they can understand the more we all learn together and we move forward so those are two books that are out right now that I'm I'm pretty excited about and I have a wild edibles of north america book that's coming out that I honestly believe is one of the best books ever made on wild edibles because it talks about so many things that like my other survival books we talk about cannibalism we talk about drinking urine. We talk about, um, you know, surviving with animals and elderly and, and infants and, you know, people who have uh, disabilities. So the same with this Wild Edibles book. So, you know, I have a few books that are out now and another one coming out, The Wild Edibles. I have these shows coming out and, of course, these charities that I'm working with. And I think 
those are like the big things. I think that keeps me pretty occupied. And the biggest thing is just for me personally, you know, my son's taking judo now and we're enjoying watching him, you know, learn both the judo and he's in math honors and learning algebra. And, you know, I have two full grown sons and grandchildren. So for me with another young man, uh, it's kind of like, you know, being a dad for the second time. And frankly, that's the biggest thing that I have going on in my life is just teaching my son and, and sharing in his growth with my wife and just, you know, having a good family life. Those are some amazing books and I'm going to get wild edibles for my family. I think it's not paranoid to be prepared to survive on your own. I think it's just well planned and thinking ahead just in case of anything, especially if you have a family, because that's when things get really tricky. It's one thing You know, if you're surviving in the woods for a few days with yourself, with your partner, but if you've got an infant, if you've got a grandma with you, that's a that's a whole nother level. It really, really is. And, and, you know, to that point, I recently was asked by FEMA to help them create a survival plan for families in the case of a large scale disaster, such as a near earth solar flare or meteor strike which, you know, I thought, okay, that was interesting all by itself, but I'm glad FEMA's planning for those things. And so, you know, I helped them devise all the stuff that they need to put in little family survival kits. And and that was a, a big honor for me to be involved in that. And so when I had some people ask me about it, I'm like, look, you know, it's a very simple equation here. When I was born in the 60s, we only had 3 billion human beings on the planet. That's all. Wow. Wow. Less than half. Yes. Okay. And, and, and now, you know, now here I am, you know, mid fifties, if I live a normal lifespan of say mid seventies, there will be 9 billion people on the planet. That's triple the population in one human life that took all of human existence to get to that 3 million, whether you believe in the creation theory or evolution, either way in the sixties, we had 3 billion. Okay. In the 2050s, 2060s, we're going to have 9 billion. Population impact on the planet is real. So every disaster, whether you believe in climate change or not, every earthquake, every volcano, every flood, every drought is going to impact more humans than it would have in the 60s, period. That's simple mathematics, indisputable. Now, you take that and say, okay, FEMA has a job to try to help people in disasters. But it's not their responsibility to help every single person. The more every person, the more every family, the more every group can help themselves, the less burden they're putting on the overall system, more FEMA can help those other people who can't help themselves. Maybe their homes got wiped out, so all of their planning is gone. Whereas you've got a home, you've got food stockpiled, you've got water, you've got survival stuff, first aid, radios. So I encourage everyone, the more you know, The more you learn, the better off you are, the better you can take care of those that you love, the better you can help those around you, the less burden you are on the system, the less you're reliant on someone else. And there's no downsides to studying survival, to being prepared, and you learn to appreciate everything in life so much more, nature, science, medicine, technology. So I just can't say it enough to people Hey, survival is for everybody. Get out there and learn everything that you can. 
read books, watch movies, practice, study, you know, have different instructors. I teach. I've been teaching for, shoot, almost three decades now, and I still learn from every student in every class because they do something or say something that I hadn't thought of, hadn't seen before, wouldn't have done. Some things are just like, okay, wow, that that really sucks. I'm not going to do that. But some things are like, wow, you know, I would have never thought to try that, but now I will. So never stop learning. Always be fascinated. Always study everything that you can, but always study survival. Be prepared. The more you are, the more confidence you have, the more peace you have, the happier you are and the happier everyone else around you is. Michael, that sounds so sensible to me. Absolutely, it makes perfect sense. Even if there's only a 1 in 1,000 chance you're going to need that, why even take that type of chance? And it might even be higher. It might be 1 in 100. And there's so much that you stand to lose. I think it's very reasonable to be prepared. Yeah, it just makes good common sense to me. Agreed. Michael works with various tactical companies, including Quartermaster, to produce products which you can purchase at hawkbrand.com. That is H-A-W-K-E-B-R-A-N-D.com, including axes, machetes, and knives. He also runs private courses and spy games, which you can learn more about on his website, michaelhawk.com, spelled out M-Y-K-E-L-H-A, wke.com. This will all be in the show notes to this episode on beautyiseternal.com. Michael also supports various humanitarian and veteran organizations, which we spoke about today, including Gold Star Teen Adventures and Healing the Wounds, which work with children of people who dedicated their lives to serving America be it as firemen or special forces officers who died in combat and teach them the skills such as hunting and fishing that their fathers would have taught them had they remained alive. You can read more about these organizations and learn how to make donations to them or get involved with them in other ways on his website. I'm super lucky and I'm super grateful and honored and privileged that you were my guest today. Because you're very busy and you're very important and you made time for me. So, Well, thank you for the message that you're trying to get out to the world and uh, good luck with everything. I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Michael. Stay safe in Afghanistan and have a great time. Okay, thank you now. Bye. Okay, bye.